Liberty lockdown, pissed on your barcode Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold Where did it come from and where did it go? It requires a fight, not tweeting from your phone Don't need a king, get him off the fucking throne If you ride with the thought, you've always got a home The virus you're scared of will come and it'll go The government knows this, don't get treated like a hoe Let's get into the show Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Liberty Lockdown. I have another special guest with me today. I just keep lining them up. You guys keep knocking them down. This is Clint. This is a special episode called Clinton Cox. No, I'm just kidding. Um, welcome, <laughs> Hannah, Hannah Cox. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too, Clint. Uh, well, I found you actually through your YouTube channel, which is probably not how most people find you since it's relatively new. Um, but she has a, a great YouTube channel called Based, and you did a, an article today about what is and isn't capitalism. Um, and I really appreciated that. It's been a, a focal point of my show as well, is that particularly when it comes to libertarians, we seem to defend what in effect is not capitalism. So I wanted to start there and see, you know, what inspired you to, to bring up that topic and, and, you know, kind of give us a cliff's notes of what you delivered to people. Yeah, well, I'm so excited you found me through my YouTube. It is so new. I just started it when I launched my vodcast about six months ago. Today was actually the premiere of episode six. And the title of it is, I don't think you know what capitalism is, because I really don't think the vast majority of people in this country do know what capitalism is. And this is a show and, and specifically an episode within the show that I've been thinking about doing for like four or five years. Um, it traces back to when I was working for a free market think tank in Tennessee. And I was working in this really great great position where I got to go into communities that really weren't aligned with me, you know, especially working within people of color communities and um, within urban areas and places that were more, you know, democratic and, and then also going into really red areas where I also had a lot of disagreement and finding this commonality, this common ground and policies and finding ways that we could work together. And it was, it was a great job. And throughout that work, I started to recognize like we had so much in common and there really wasn't all of this divisiveness or all of this, you know, spans between our views or between our issues as you would think if you just sat around and watched CNN or Fox. And I started really recognizing that in talking with people, the vast majority of, of people I encountered, they really didn't know what capitalism was, right? You had Republicans who were like, yes, I support capitalism. But then they would really, you know, come up against me when we would try to push policies that were based around criminal justice reform or corporate welfare reform um, or even school choice at times. And then, you know, working in democratic communities, they would really kind of rail against you when you were pushing for tax reform or for deregulation. And it just occurred to me during that time that most people didn't really understand what um, our economic system actually was, what we were trying to move it toward. <laughs> and, and I really have wanted to do this episode for a long time. So I was excited to release today's episode because it gave me an opportunity to really lay out in a very basic format what is free market capitalism? What has the United States relationship been to it? You know, are we a capitalist country? Were we ever a capitalist country? And and what have what have capitalism's impacts been on various societies when it has been attempted? So um, it was it was great to finally get to release it, and I'm getting you know incredible feedback, and I hope it really spurs these conversations amongst people so that we can maybe at least find some common ground, some common language to better discuss the issues that face us, because I think so many of the 
problem in society that we face, you'll find people on the left and right agree with. And, and they just have these, um, this lack of common language, this lack of common understanding of basic economics in which to understand the problems that created the issues they struggle with in the first place. And so they, they incorrectly blame things like capitalism when really most of these problems trace back to big government. Yeah. Well, in my, in my opinion, basically all of them do. Um, but your, your point about us being divided between like you were, you were meeting people and, and realizing that we weren't as divided as, you know, CNN and Fox news might make you believe. Uh, I would just say that if, if we were as divided as CNN and Fox news are in reality, this country would have already divided a long time ago. Um, so I, I think it's pretty, pretty evident based off of the fact that, that we persist and we continue to live amongst each other. That in fact, we are far more similar than, than we might imagine. If you just, if you don't ever interact with the people that have different ideologies, I do think that the point that you made about, you know, what capitalism actually is, is, is a very vital one because particularly as a longtime libertarian and cap type person, um, witnessing a few of the libertarians defending, uh, what I believe is a fascistic model where you have, you know, big tech working in unison with government to suppress dissident thought and things of that nature. Um, it's really important and incumbent upon the libertarians in particular to let people know that, you know, while we are pro business, this is not what we are pro. And um, it's a very important and nuanced take, which many people are incapable of. So I really appreciated your video because it helped lay that groundwork. Thank you. Thanks so much. No problem. Um, I, I did want to make uh, or give one pushback against the uh, a point that you made when and I'm sure you expected this, but you said, uh, you know, all my anarchist friends. I, I disagree. <laughs> I disagree that we that we need to have. Uh, no government or, or we can have no government and still have a functioning business model. Just a, a minor critique there. It, it's not that, that anarchists in particular are against governance as much as they're against government. So like you would still have mutually agreed upon um, contractual agreements that were mitigated by courts. So you could still have, you know, criminal justice system and, and courts and, and, you know, uh, tort law, just legal, legal mechanisms to enforce contract law would still exist under anarchism. Um, so I just wanted to, to mention that because I don't want to dissuade you from considering anarchy as a, as a potential path for you. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate you bringing that up. It was something I had not really addressed in my show yet, but I have so many anarchists in my base and, and I see their comments all the time. like, move her, move her, bring her over. And I'm <laughs> yeah. like, I am so close. I understand why you think I'm gettable. I do because I hate the government. <laughs> <laughs> I understand why I'm a target for you. And I just love anarchists and, and I'm, I'm so close to being there, but I really do really fall more into the camp of where our founders were. Now, I don't think that, you know, I think that was their first attempt, right? It was the first time anything in history had ever been attempted like this. And I think they gave it a great first shot. I don't think it was sufficient enough to actually, and I touched on this in the show, um, in, ensure that we actually did have a free market laissez-faire capitalist system. They really did not go far enough in, in enshrining that in our laws whatsoever. Um, and because of that, you know, if you give government an inch, it's going to take a mile. And, and I think that probably, you know, the people I could best sit down in a room with and figure out solutions for what I think needs to happen in society would be anarchists because we're so close. But I do have this, um, I'm not quite there yet in thinking that we could totally not have government. There would be cooperation without some kind of force. And like, that's just sort of this unfortunate um, reality that I think I grapple with. And, you know, I come from 
very conservative home. My dad's actually a Southern Baptist pastor. So I kind of have that like layered on top of it. And for people who aren't familiar with Southern Baptists, it's, it's a bit more of authoritarian fundamentalist uh, version of Christianity. And, and so in that, in that sector of Christianity, they would actually say that government's like a gift from God. And I'm like, Oh, easy. Like that's not, that's not what it is. Government's this like necessary evil in my book that right. I want as tight and constrained as possible. So I love those kind of discussions because again, like I, I think there's so much room for compromise. And I also think it's so enlightening to hear people's ideas about how our system could function other than what it has been. And I'm I'd so much rather have that discussion than people who are like, it's always been this way. So it has to keep being that way. No, like there's plenty of room for new ideas. And that's what our country was founded upon was like a new way of doing things. And I think we should keep moving in that direction. Exactly. And, and I, I don't want you to take it as me you know, trying to convert you with a single counterpoint. That would be ridiculous. I'm certainly not doing that. Uh, I just didn't want you to to dismiss the concept entirely simply because um, you can't imagine a, a system in which there is no, uh, you know, force. Basically, like, I guess the best analogy I could use or the best uh, example I could use is like, even without a government, you would still have uh, contract law. Like if you if you were to lend money to someone against their house, Obviously, it may require force to get that collateral if you were to foreclose upon it under an anarcho-capitalist system. You would still enter contract with between those two parties with a third party or arbiter or arbitrator that would, uh, you know, decide who has the correct claim and would be able to retrieve that property if the person were to not perform on the loan. So, um, anyways, uh, this is this is very in the weeds, and I don't want to take us here very long, but. Um, <laughs> I agree with you. Obviously, Where we want to. Yeah, we want to. We want to <laughs> limit uh, the the use of force uh, as much as possible. Um, as for uh, your your prior episodes, uh, I, I know you you hammered on a lot of the unforeseen consequences of lockdowns. Um, I, this has been basically the, as you can tell by the title, Liberty Lockdown. This is the entire focal point of my show. Is that um, not only were our liberties given away, but in fact, you know the overall ramifications on our health were so detrimental. And, and I'm not at all sure that we even had a net savings of life for, for all of the sacrifices that we made. Um, I'm just curious what, what your thought have, has been on this as it's transpired over the past year. Yeah, I love that your show started for that reason. I didn't actually know that. Um, I, I've had a really interesting experience with COVID. I had actually just moved to New York City in November of 2019. So I was like, in the storm's eye when this all hit and was new to the city because I didn't really know a ton of people hadn't really you know planted or really uh, dug in yet and so um, I remember like March the city just clearing out and me thinking like this is just New Yorkers being weird right like they're weird people like I don't know why. like I'm, <laughs> I kind of like it I'm the only person in my yoga studio there's no competition on the subway for a seat like fine by me go home I get to go to my restaurant easily tonight <laughs> like I was very sort of flipping about it. And and then I remember like about a weekend, I went to get groceries at Trader Joe's and I went down into the subway on a Saturday, like noon, middle of Union Square. And it was just a ghost house. Like, and I, I thought I saw a dog and one other person down there in the subway. And I was like, well, this is not safe. <laughs> like, I need to get up out of here. Yeah. Um, and from that point on, you know, it got very intense in New York. And I have to say that like, I mean, it, at the very beginning, I would say within the first week, 
I sort of was in this mode of like, I don't know what's happening. Like I wish in, in that first week I had been like, no, no lockdowns. And I, I can't say that I had that reaction. I was sort of like, this is weird. Like I don't have to make of this. And like kind of thought it was more of a New York city thing than anything else. And like knew that it was a very blue city. And it really wasn't spreading throughout the rest of the country at that point. It was mostly us in LA that were going through this. So I was texting people in LA and Seattle um, and kind of comparing notes for like what the governments were doing, what they weren't. Um, I, I could never have foreseen that first week when those things started happening that we would end up where we are now a year down the road. Um, but I remember there were voices who did. Like I remember, you know, Feed.org, uh, Foundation for Economic Education, where I'm now a fellow, a lot of their writers were immediately on it. Um, Jeff Tucker, who'd formerly been with Fee and now is with AIER, he was on top of it. And there were a lot of people who like very quickly recognized like the 10 steps down the road of this. Um, and they've been absolutely correct. And I remember after the first, you know, 14 days, whatever we were told passed, I started writing uh, frequently about the problems with this and about how a crisis is the perfect time to seize power and how we do know these things historically. And, um, you know, we don't, we didn't have the information we now have showing that lockdowns conclusively, I would say, have not worked, have not worked to prevent life and have had all of these um, unintended consequences that I would argue have cost more life. Um, but we we could have, you know, had the benefit of history of knowing how these things go and of knowing that when you give up uh, your liberty to try to get security, you usually end up with neither. And that's certainly what has happened over the past, you know, almost a year now. And if you look at the states that did not lock down, you look at the states that have pushed back against lockdowns and have pushed back against restrictions um, and the countries too, like Sweden, you know, compared to the rest of Europe, their death rates are no higher or worse than other other um, states or other countries that did favor really extreme lockdowns. And so I, I think in hindsight, we now clearly know um, the benefit of, of staying open and of, of moving forward and of, and of trying to face this without causing secondary harm. But I think for students of history, it's an important lesson, which is is that you you never get both um, security and liberty when you trade one for the other. You, you usually end up with neither. And, and that's something that I think people need to carry with them as we move forward. And one thing I would hope that people take with them as they move forward is that the government can't keep you safe. We've seen mm -hmm. failure after failure after failure in the past year and so much corruption, so much you know corporate welfare and pork in the midst of it. Like, even when people are dying, there's this mass pandemic, they're still finding a way to do corporate welfare. It's ridiculous. And, it's and so for anybody who, you know, favored government control of anything in the past, I would think that would be a wake up call. God, I wish. Um, I, I think what, <laughs> what was so disheartening about this, and I, I don't know how old you are, but I, I was, you know, about 18, 19 years old when 9-11 happened. And, you know, that I had this experience already. We already had the trauma moment and then a, a relinquishing of our rights to try and, you know, retrieve our, our security and our safety, or at least the perception of it. And, and we got neither, you know, we still, mm -hmm. we still have terrorist attacks. We still have mass shootings. We still have all this stuff and we no longer have privacy. We no longer can communicate with our, you know, our friends and family without being spied on by the NSA. We can't get on a plane without being molested by the TSA. Like we have already done this. And that, that's why I was so upset and, and I guess just disappointed in the American people that like, I mean, 9-11 was at least genuinely scary. Like it was like, okay, this is an outsider. We don't know what's happening. Like maybe we're at war. I don't know. You know, in the moment, I'm just going back to like the moment of when it happened. Yeah. But with this, it was like, yeah, okay. A virus is scary, but like viruses happen like all the time throughout oh, yeah. history. This, ha this is not new, new, new stuff. 
And, and it really bummed me out, just to put it bluntly, it bummed me out that, that the American people didn't learn their lesson from 9-11. And it, and it really, it gives me pause in believing that they will have learned a lesson from this one either. Do you think that they will? Yeah, I think it's a valid point. You know, I was a kid when 9-11 happened. I was in eighth grade. And and I remember like, you know, given given the context of the household I grew up in and just and what the world was around me, like I was very much bought into all of it. Like I loved Bush and I, you know, had probably called them freedom fries. And, like I was like right. totally in on war and like patriotism <laughs> and nationalism and like some of my feelings about it. And I literally remember as an eighth grader being like, if you don't, if you've done nothing wrong, you have nothing to hide, you know, around the Patriot Act, like <laughs> like all these like points, but I, I often point out to people, like I was in eighth grade and my brain wasn't fully developed. Like, what is yeah. your excuse? I, to- <laughs> like, I totally at the end you. of the day. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my brain was still real mushy. Like I yeah. just parroted what I was told, but I think that actually that experience has informed so much of where I ended up as an adult, because I did, you know, I did sort of get to live that experience from as a kid, buying into that and believing in it and then seeing where we went the ramifications of it and how it actually played out and being like, Oh, Oh God, no, like this was, I was fooled. And, you know, I don't, I don't know that the average American gets there. And, and I, you know, I, I somewhat blame them for not being more involved and participatory in their system. But I also blame sort of the, you know, system we've built to keep them from being participatory in their system. We, we have a media that really kind of coddles people and pulls them into their silos and feeds them, you know, this constant stream of, of groupthink and what they want to hear. And it doesn't really ever poke holes in the narrative. And even now in my, in my full-time work, I work in criminal justice reform. And so I, I'm, you know, a right-leaning person, right-leaning libertarian kind of type in this work. But a lot of people I work with are more on the left even the far left and and their reactions to covid and the lockdowns compared to mine are like a world apart you know it's yeah. been so interesting to compare and to see and to witness like how differently people are responding to the data, but also like recognizing that they're not seeing the same data as me. You know, their algorithms are feeding different things into their newsfeed. They're, they're hearing different things from their friends and family. Like I have family that's in South Carolina when this whole thing first hit and, and I was in New York, they were like, come home, come home, come home, come home. We don't care. Come home, like get out of there, you know? And I've talked to other people who were like, oh yeah, my parents won't see me. Like they are terrified they're in their homes. And I'm like, that's, that's crazy to me, but like, what would, you know, how would that change your perception of all of this? If your family was really scared and staying at home and not seeing people, like, I, I think we're somewhat all a byproduct of our environment and we're in very sure. different environments. Yeah. Well, I, I haven't seen my grandma and, you know, I've seen her once, I think in the past year because she's horrified and she's a, an avid CNN viewer. So, um, you know, that corollary. It's sad. <laughs> I saw, um, John Miltimore with Fee actually wrote about it, but there was a survey that was circulating showing um, the vast majority of Americans just way overestimated the danger of COVID and how likely you were to be hospitalized over it. And right. it was a really you know shocking, in some ways, shocking study. But in other ways, it's like, I'm not surprised because the media has been telling people this is so much more dangerous than it is. And that's not to say you shouldn't take precautions, especially if you're old or you have you know comorbidities. But at the end of the day, it's not nearly as deadly as we initially thought. It's certainly not as deadly as, as the media has made it seem. And most people are not... Um, hospitalized. My dad's a pastor of a large church. We're in a small town in the South. We've known hardly anybody who's been impacted by this, you know, as a whole, like he gets called into hospitals 
day in, day out, even for people who aren't members of the church, my dad's always at the hospital visiting people. And the number of people we've known who've even been hospitalized over this um, has been really, you know, minor, even within a, in the elderly populations around here. And so uh, the experience of it versus what you're told in the media has been quite different. Yeah. Well, I think that's what's so concerning to me is that like, certainly I'm just as prone as anybody else to go out and seek information that, that reaffirms my previously held beliefs. However, I also consume some CNN and some Fox news and some news sources that I don't agree with wholeheartedly or, or at all sometimes. Um, but then I also will kind of follow up that, that information intake with some sort of critical thought and like, can I find some dissenting viewpoints online or is there any, is there any dissension amongst the, uh, the scientists, uh, you know, whoever's evaluating all this risk stuff. And, and that's what I did. I just, I, I took in all of the fear mongering and then I took in some of the more critical thinking people that were like, okay, this is what we're actually seeing in the death figures and the hospitalization rates and things like that. And I concluded that it was being far overstated. What, what bothers me is that it seems as if some people literally spend no time at all, even, even if their life is on the line, like this was, if you believed it's as dangerous as, as you've been told, this is a life and death issue. And yet people still refuse to do any legwork whatsoever to find out what the true danger is. Is that fixable? I'm not sure. I think it's only fixable if people become more self-aware of that factor, right? Like, I, I don't know about you, but I don't, I think there were things in my history that made me prone to look out for things that um, poked holes in my narrative or in my worldview. Like I'm someone who was really brought up to be a critical thinker. I was homeschooled. I remember even throughout the course of my homeschool curriculum, I took classes on logic. I took classes on like how to break out of your bubble essentially. And then I, I also think by nature of the fact of how I grew up in a very religious household, it made me sort of rebellious in that way. <laughs> like I didn't always like um, the ways I was brought up in or the ideology that my family members held. And so it made me somebody who really poked holes in things and like questioned things much more intensively. And I just think, unfortunately, a lot of people don't get that experience. Um, you know, I don't know. I often say, I don't know who I would be if I'd gone to regular school. I really don't. I don't know that I would have get, uh, been given those skills. And I don't know that I wouldn't have been like broken down enough by like peer pressure and bullies to be a conformist. Like, I think, I think that's something that's pushed on kids from a very young, vulnerable age. Um, and I, I really almost don't entirely blame people when they aren't more of a critical thinker, because I just think there's so many things that are like indoctrinated and programmed into them from such a young age. It's hard to break out of that. Right. I think the way to help people, if they have been brought up in that system, and they haven't been given those tools is to slowly help them recognize that they're in a bubble um, and to help them recognize that, you know, they aren't uh, all encompassing thinkers or people who are necessarily getting the full picture. And the only way to really do that is to form relationships with people who hold different views than you. And I think that's one of the most important things you can do in this country is like make friends who are of different mindsets than you, because I, your pull on them, your influence on them will be so much more significant than anything you say on Twitter. You know, I'm somebody who enjoys pretty good social media following and, and that's a great platform that I have. But the biggest growth, the biggest movement I see in people that I influence is in my day-to-day relationships and people I work around. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I, I don't want it to come across as if I'm, I, I don't have any sympathy for these people that don't take any outside information news sources and distill it down and have any critical thought applied. Like, I agree with you. Certainly, it's upbringing. Like, I, I went to public school, but my parents 
you know, kind of bred into me uh, a mistrust of government and a mistrust of, uh, you know, news sources and authority figures. And, and I guess, I guess the issue is that, you know, I can have a lot of sympathy right up until the point that your ignorance ends up advocating for my, you know, my yeah. slave, my slavery. Like if for you, sure. if you unintentionally lead us towards totalitarianism, I'm sorry, but you become my enemy. You know, you do because like that affects my life. And, and that's what these lockdowns, th that's why I got so radicalized in this past year is because ultimately like, yeah, you're right. I don't, I don't care if someone else has a wrong opinion, but I very much care when their wrong opinion leads to me being locked in my fucking house for a year, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, that's a For disaster. Sure. And then you have this asshole Fauci who's just lying to people nonstop, openly admits it months after the fact. Yeah, well, I said you didn't need the mask. You did, but we needed it for the healthcare workers. And, you know, his his list of lies is very significant and it's documentable. Yeah. And I have it on fucking video. I can show you. And it's like people still trust this asshole. How is that even possible? Right. They're like wearing underwear with his name on them. It's, it's beyond creepy. <laughs> it's <very weird>. <laughs> <laughs> No, you're absolutely right. And like, but I don't think that's limited to just the lockdowns. Like that's that, that applies to a wide range of issues we deal with in society where like people's ignorance does hurt you, right? Like people yeah. being ignorant about taxes, about regulation, about criminal justice reform on and on we could go. It does impact you. It does hurt you. And I think that it's, um, it's hard not to become, uh, radicalized or super partisan against people. I think the one thing that's prevented that is like, I hate both of the two partisan parties so much. Like I couldn't possibly be partisan. Yeah, um, me both. And even that, you know, I think is a big opportunity because when I meet people, they really expect you, if you have a counter view from them to be on this other team. And when they find out that you're not, they no longer have this like argument that they thought they had right now they have to argue on the merits. And what I found is that most people can't do that. Most people no. aren't super up to speed on policy. They really don't understand why they go for what they go for. They literally just follow their two teams around like they're Alabama or Auburn, you know, and I always compare it to like these football teams that I grew up around in, in the deep South. Um, but as an Alabama fan, like it really resonates with me because you just are so in on your team mentality. There's nothing the other team can do right. There's nothing your team can do wrong and you hate their guts. And you want them to go down, but like, what's really the difference? between mm -hmm. Alabama and Auburn. I mean, Alabama's good and Auburn's not. So there's that, but like as a whole, you know, <laughs> I think I know what team you support. <laughs> yeah. I keep it on the download, but, um, <laughs> but it's similar. And, and I think that not being partisan, being somebody who's able to like call spades a spade on either side actually does give you a lot more ground to work with, with people and help them break out of this team mentality, break out of this two party system and really start looking at things more objectively because um, the party system is what keeps people uh, sort of in this like sheep-like mentality where they're able to just sort of follow either along and not really have to think that hard for themselves. And it's, it's very problematic. And I, and I say that as somebody who used to be in it, you know, in college, I was all in on the Republican party. I remember like throwing a John McCain party in my dorm room. <laughs> Oh, eight, which is embarrassing. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> like, what the shit was that? But I did. Yeah. I was at Belmont. We were hosting a debate, and man, I thought Obama was the Antichrist for sure. I thought he was a communist, and I thought McCain was like this, like patriot, and like 
it was a clear choice to me, you right. know, but in hindsight, I'm like, oh my God, they were number one, pretty similar in their ideology. Yeah, totally. Number two, like John McCain was a crazy person. Like he was yeah. a super neocon, you know, but I was so in on that mentality. Like you could never have come in and told me that it, it took baby steps and progression. It took people like me knowing people on the left, me knowing people who were libertarians, like slowly poking holes in my mentality and helping right. me break out of it. Yeah. And that, and that's why I have so much, I do have a genuine patience and love for anybody who's, who's evolving. It's yeah. the people who have stopped evolving that I, I get bothered by. And the people that whatever, whatever conclusion they've come to, they decide that they want the force of the state to implement it. That's why, that's yeah. why it's so, it's so hard because it's like, of course I want to be kind and I want to, I want to give people room to grow and improve and learn. But at the same time, I don't want to be locked in my house. Yeah. You know, like right. how much patience can I have? I don't want to have half my money stolen by the federal government and state. I'm in California. It's a nightmare. Um, I'm shortly, I'll be out of here. But uh, <laughs> I mean, it's just like, it's, it's a really tough balance. I think, I think that yeah. it's, uh, that's why, I, and I know this sounds very sexist, but it's true. So take it for what it's worth. I like having women on because you guys seem to have a better capacity to maintain that kindness than the, the male guests and myself. Um, do you, have you noticed that as well? Or is, is that totally a ridiculous statement? Um, I have to be honest. I don't know. I don't feel like I encounter a ton of women in, in my camp, in okay. my worldview, yeah, yeah, yeah. unfortunately enough. Like um, I, you know, I'm seeing a change in that in the past five years where like, I, and especially in the generation that's a little bit younger than me, I'm kind of in the middle of millennials. Um, I'm seeing a lot more Gen Z women coming up in this movement. That's exciting to me, but I, I don't, I don't really know that I've had a ton of experience around women to say, I do think that it is in our nature as women to be a bit more, um, analytical perhaps like I know I'm always looking for like the why like I'm really concerned with why people do what they do and if I can understand the why then I have so much more empathy and like grace um but you know I also work in criminal justice reform and I do work around people um you know we talk a lot about nonviolent people and we talk a lot about innocent people of which there are both in our system but the reality is is that we wouldn't have mass incarceration. We wouldn't have the numbers we have without people who are guilty, without people who did do violent things. Um, and a lot of my work has been a conditioning to understand where violence comes from, why people do what they do in order to better understand how we stop it and how we prevent it. And so it's this constant conditioning almost that I feel like I've learned to fight my human nature in a lot of ways, because everybody's human nature is a bit vengeful and a bit like retaliatory. And I think that's very normal. But if we want to actually prevent it, understanding why and understanding how to like de-escalate is actually more of the solution. Um, and I think that that's probably true in politics as well. You know, understanding how to like remain calm and de-escalate and to get down to the why people believe what they believe and then deconstruct it for them and help them understand that really probably the real issue is government versus mm -hmm. whatever, you know, boogeyman they're blaming for it. And then we can move forward. And that's that's been my experience in the field. Again, I get to work with a lot of people who are very left-wing by nature of the fact I work in criminal justice reform. And I often find that they end up moving by associating with me because they meet me and they go, well, you're not racist. Well, you're not a bigot. You're not a xenophobe. You're somebody who cares about these issues we care about. Like, what are we missing? Why do you why do you love capitalism? And then I get to explain to them like that capitalism what the, isn't what they think that it is and, and mm -hmm. its benefits. And so I've seen a lot of them move um, and become a bit more libertarian in their viewpoints. And that's very exciting to me. 
But I, I do think it's a constant conditioning where um, it doesn't necessarily come naturally to me. It's something I work really hard at because I'm a bit of a high head. I'm from Alabama. <laughs> I'm Irish. Like I, I could very easily <laughs> pop off. And you're right. Like when it comes down to your rights being on the line, like it's your life, it's your livelihood. It's very normal to be vengeful and retaliatory and to want to be right. like exercised about it because it does hurt you and it does hurt other people. You know, I often say like when it comes to some of these policies I'm passionate about, it's not even that it hurts me all the time. Like immigration, for example, it doesn't hurt me. It hurts the immigrants, but it also hurts poor people in our country. Like if you guys block immigrants, I can afford it. I'll be fine. But go help. The, you know, what are you going to say to the poor people in our country who can barely afford it as it is? They will no longer be able to afford their groceries. They will no longer be afford, you know, able to afford their clothing. Like all these things will increase. And it's, it's this disconnect in how these things are related where you actually end up hurting people who are even less well off than me. That does make me a little bit like antagonistic at times. So it's, it's, yeah. it's work. For yeah. sure. No, it definitely is. And and to your point about, you know, having vengefulness or, or uh, forgiveness in your heart, I, I think a perfect example, and it's a stupid one, but it's a good example nonetheless, is that if you watch a documentary on someone uh, on death row and you hear their life story and you hear about their child abuse or their uh, molestation or whatever they went through, it's, I don't know about you, but anytime I watch those, I come out the other side going like, ah, can we just, can we get this guy out on parole? Like, do we need to put him to death? Like, yeah. and and I think that so often the issue is like we see we see the one violent act that they committed and it's tragic and someone someone's life was taken. So like they have to pay a price. I, I'm not saying that we should just be like, oh, well, if they had a rough childhood to like let them let them go. Right. Um, but at the same time, it does require a more well-rounded viewing of everything and just being like, OK, well, they took a life, so they got to pay a massive price. But. What, like you said, what can we do to get to the core of this? And I'm curious, what, what has your, your work led you to believe? What, what can we actually do to try and heal the hearts of these people before they become, you know, violent criminals that take lives and stuff like that? Yeah, it was, it was the biggest shift in my thinking when I, when I first was presented with the information, the data that showed that most people who commit harm, who commit violence were first victims themselves. You know, Mm -hmm. growing up, I had this dichotomy in my mind. I think most people have of like, victim perpetrator and there was right. no nothing in between there's bad guys and there's good guys and there's people who are people and there's innocent people and like when you get into the justice system it's so much messier than that it's so much murkier than that and you really do see that violence is quite cyclical in nature that's not to say that everyone who is harmed will repeat the harm by no sure. means is that true but it is to say that if someone is harmed they are substantially more likely to repeat that harm we know the early indicators of someone who could become violent right we we have these things called like ACE measurement um, tests these days that you could give to a child at a pretty young age and start to identify someone who might show signs that would indicate that they could be um, predisposed to violence down the road. And what could happen if if we were to start allocating those tests more frequently and at a, at a larger number, um, is that we could then redirect money that we're spending on things like the death penalty. You know, we waste a million dollars in excess per death penalty case before the execution's even carried out. Um, that doesn't prevent a deterrent effect. That's an opportunity cost. That's money we're wasting on things that could prevent crime in the first place. If we were to redirect those dollars towards saying, okay, we have these kids in this school that are, you know, potentially at high risk for becoming violent. And instead we started getting them treatment. We started getting them therapy early on. We started intervening in 
in their homes. Like a lot of them are being abused, sexually trafficked, sexually molested, really horrific things that are happening in the home that we know then can lead to violence. You know, many of them have seen murder committed, have lost um, loved ones to murder. All of these things are very impactful and they really do um, create physiological scars on the brain that we now know as we advance in science really does, it changes your processes. It changes your flight or or flight response. It changes um, the way you process information. And so it's not just that people have these traumatic backgrounds. I remember, you know, growing up, I was very tough on crime in my approach and I was very pro death penalty. And like, I thought anytime people brought up these histories of people within the criminal justice population, that it was sort of a bleeding heart statement. But in reality, they're asking people to look at the science. They're asking people to look at what we now know and what we're um, increasingly gaining information on around trauma, about how it impacts people's brains and about how it can predispose people to more violence and about trying to intervene with our programs. Um, And there's a lot of really cool private public partnerships that are happening in communities. There's things like Cure Violence. There's things like, um, they call them call-ins, where they basically bring in a lot of practitioners that work in the apparatus of the justice system. So social workers, um, mentors, these are people that are faith activists. They're sometimes like judges and and prosecutors and and people who are within the system. They do these call-ins to bring gangs in and do de-escalation type tactics and talks, and, and then also try to match some of these really young kids with services to help them get on a better track because we know that poverty often is very closely linked with with crime and with violence and so if you can give people pathways out of that that can de-escalate and so there's there's a lot of really cool innovative stuff happening and i love that it's happening largely outside of the government apparatus it's, it's a lot of private work happening and um, lower cost work happening and it's really taking into account you know psychology and sociology and 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 the faith community and finding ways that we can actually work to give people a foot out of this world um, and actually really deter violence in the first place instead of reacting heavily when it does happen and being very punitive in in our reaction oftentimes which can compound the same underlying root causes of violence and and makes me um, more likely to keep committing crime versus helping them de-escalate and move away from that. Yeah, and break break the cycle, so to speak. Um, I, since you were obviously raised fairly religious with your dad being a pastor, I'd imagine I, I've always I've always been surprised by the correlation between tough on crime and the religious right. Is that some Old Testament connection, or like how how is it that that's because obviously Jesus speaks of forgiveness and kindness and all these other things, but also old Testament, it's like fire and brimstone and, you know, eye for an eye and all that. So what, how is that? How did that come about? Do you have any idea? Yeah, no, I do. And I, I think it's something that's a bit unique to American Christianity, which it's, you know, when we're in America, we're so like in our own bubble and and we forget that there's all these other like countries that also have Christianity that operates quite differently than America. Of course. Yeah branches of Christianity. And even within America, you have huge divides, you know, you have Southern Baptists, all the way to like Unitarians, and, and there's very little water between the two. So um, it depends on which branch you're talking about. I do think there's a number of Christian denominations in this country who would be like right next to me at state legislatures, working alongside me to move criminal justice reform. And, um, and then you have a small number of subsects that tend to be concentrated in the deep South. They tend to be a little bit more fundamentalist in their viewpoints, and they do tend to really still rely very heavily on the Old Testament, even though they believe in Jesus and the New Covenant, they still put a lot of stock in the Old Testament. and. Okay. 
I, I really do blame that on their pastors. Um, I think, you know, as a whole, people will follow their leaders. People will follow what they're being taught theologically. And there's been a lot of preaching specifically in denominations like the Southern Baptist world and the Methodist world and, and some of the more deep South uh, Christian religion sects that, that teaches a very like punitive, tough on crime, fire and brimstone type ideology within Christianity that I don't personally adhere to. I don't think the vast majority of Christians throughout the world adhere to, but um, it certainly is very prevalent and very powerful because if you look at the, the makeup of the state legislatures in these areas, they tend to follow very closely with these religions. Like I know I used to live in Tennessee. Um, Tennessee was something like 80% Southern Baptist. So if you were coming in and trying to move legislation, a lot of those people would revert to their religious teachings to move um, bills or not move bills. Even though I don't, you know, I don't agree with that. I'm someone who grew up very much in the Christian world and, and still am in the Christian world, but I don't believe that my faith should dictate public policy. I think that's extremely arrogant. I think we need separation of church and state. I think you know, the majority of people in these Christian sects would be very outraged and upset if we were to take Muslim teaching or Mormon teaching or any number of other religious, you know, um, denominations and start using their doctrine to advance policy, but they think it's fine to use theirs. And I, I adamantly disagree with that. And I think it's something that actually hurts Christianity and hurts Christians witness in our society because Christianity is not about force. There's nothing in the Bible that ever said you should take the government and use it and force people to act along what the Bible tells you as a Christian to personally do and act like. So right. it's, it's something that I think can create a lot of animosity. Well, and, and that's the thing that as someone who's more, more or less not raised with religion and would probably be categorized as agnostic, um, it's always blown my mind when you see Christians that have you know, a real hard on crime approach because like Jesus was killed by the state, you know, like if, if there was one story, like the main point of the whole book is that like, maybe we don't want to have a, uh, you know, a state that's so powerful that they can kill whoever they deem a dissident. And in this case, it was their savior. So it's like, it's just, it's just a very fascinating thing. Like I'll never understand how they got past the fact that like, God was basically killed by an all-powerful state, and yet they can still believe in an all-powerful state that and give them the rights to kill. It's it's a so, very it's very interesting to me. Not only do they believe that, but I have to tell you a funny anecdote from Wyoming. Like two years ago, we were moving death penalty repeal legislation there, and one of their state representatives came up to give testimony and gave the most bonkers testimony I've ever heard in my life. It got mocked on all the late night television shows and for good reason. But she quite literally came up and essentially said that without the death penalty, Jesus could not have been murdered by the state. Therefore, he would not have died for us. And therefore, he couldn't have died to save us. And therefore, we'd all be going to hell. So we needed to keep the death penalty. Jesus Christ. Because that was what allowed <laughs> Jesus to save us. And we were like, oh my God, what church are you going to? Like, this is beyond crazy. Like, the weirdest oh moment I've had in my death penalty work to date. But um, but yeah, you're right. Like a huge disconnect, like a real missing, um, you know, just a huge chink in like the the theology of of what people ascribe to. You know, so much of Christianity is grounded around redemption and around human life being valued based on being a child of God, which you cannot win or lose. It, you're, you naturally have that because of 
being made in the image of God. And, and no matter what you've done, God can still love you and forgive you and like use your life for good. And throughout the Bible, there's all of these stories of people who were murderers, who God used their lives for good. You know, Paul who wrote half of the new Testament was a murderer. Mm -hmm. Um, You have David, you have, you know, various, very famous people throughout the Bible who killed other people and who did not get the death penalty and, and, and who were actually used very powerfully. Um, and I think it's really disappointing to see Christians just totally disconnect from that and instead think that the Bible mandates the death penalty, which it doesn't, or think that, um, you know, the death penalty is something we have in this country that mirrors the Bible system. It doesn't. Mm-hmm. So there's there's just a lot of um, a lack of education, I think, in your own religion sure. that that stems and, from, really. And, and it sounds like I'm just bas- bashing on the Christian conservatives, but I, this is a bipartisan problem. I mean, Joe Biden's entire career yeah. was predicated on him being the toughest on crime. He was an absolute fucking disaster with all of his, you know, tough on crime, tough on drug laws, bills. Um, so this is bipartisan. And for the life of me, I just can't understand it. It's like, and I appreciate your your willingness to like still want to maintain the separation of church and state and not have your religion dictate policy. But the truth for me is like, I don't really care if if someone's political advocacy is aligned with their um their religious faith as long as they're taking the best aspects of it you know like if you're if you're approaching criminal justice reform with jesus's spirit of forgiveness and reform and trying to help them still have a a valuable life that can contribute to society as opposed to being old testament and punitive and like that's all that's all i'm asking you know and the same same for muslims like it I don't care as long as as long as you are using the best aspect because there are aspects of kindness and forgiveness and and all sorts of really really beautiful concepts that come from you know basically every religious sect. It just seems as if oftentimes when it comes to law, it's the worst aspects of religion that actually get put into law. And I uh, I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm glad yeah, I'm, I'm glad there's people like you out there that are are working on fixing that. Religion is supposed to be the thing that helps people elevate beyond their human nature and to approach things in a way that's otherworldly or, you know, beyond our, our own capacities or understanding. And yet we see so often that when people are acting in their faith, they're inclined to actually go more towards the worst of human nature and the most base characteristics that we have. So it's, it's disappointing. I think it is a failure of our religious institutions. I think it's a failure of our religious leaders and teachings. And I think increasingly, you know, we like to champion America as being this like very religious nation, a very Christian nation, but we're not, we have very weak leadership. We have, um, you know, we've really seen that over the past four or five years, I think as a Christian with our, the dominant Christian names in this country, there's very few who have stood on principle, who have stood on actual theology and, and a lot more who have caved quite quickly for political expediency and popularity and power. And um, as a whole, you know, I think that our political institutions are not the only ones that are weakening right now. I think there's a lot of institutions that are really showing their true colors. Uh, sorry, which, which institutions do you think that are weakening besides the government? Well, I think our, our churches, our, our religious okay. institutions. Um, I think a lot of denominations that have had a stronghold are, are really showing uh, their true colors and what they really stand for. And for me, it was sort of a um, 
eye-opening past four years or so where I really did recognize that a lot of the people who claim to stand for different Christian values would give those up quite quickly for political expediency and to be near power mm-hmm. um, and would and would quite quickly turn their back on all of these you know principles and ideas that they claim to stand for beforehand um, and actually even persecute those who did choose to stand for those things and to not go you know the the easy pathway towards popularity and political power so it's, it's just been a very um, eye-opening opening past four or five years, I would say for many people in the Christian apparatus, Christian bubble. Do you think that's a, like a demunition of faith? Do you think it's a, you know, like getting away from God? What, what is this? What, what's creating this? No, I don't think it's that. I think, I think it's more so just recognizing that there's been a dominant religious institution um, that has become very in- intertwined with politics over the past four or five decades, specifically really beginning in the 70s and 80s. And I think it's become so intertwined that many of the churches have lost their way. And I think many of the, the leaders and pastors have lost their way and they're no longer teaching the gospel. They're teaching the gospel of the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. And their their constituents really can't tell the difference. They, they genuinely don't know the difference. And so when, you know, Trump came into power and he started going off the deep end and some of these issues. And for me, some of these issues were not even just political views that I held. They really came down to an ethos and to how I view humanity. And I was really disgusted and just totally, you know, felt that some of the things he was saying and, and pushing were important. And I watched so many of the evangelical circles and churches and, and pastors and Christians go and follow it and, and adamantly believe it. And I just recognized at that point that our churches and our leaders had really failed most Mm -hmm. of their grassroots people because I don't think they'd really been taught the gospel. You know, just as you have Republicans who say they support free market capitalism and then don't notice when their leaders go and support the opposite of it. That happened within Christianity in the past several years, too, where they they claim to support the gospel and Christianity and Jesus's teachings. But then they didn't notice when somebody came out and was really pushing the opposite of that Mm -hmm. and followed it blindly. Right. Yeah, I mean that I'm feeling blackpilled now, but uh <laughs> after I mean the the reason the reason I, I say that is because you know it's it's relatively easy or not easy, but it's easier to critique and curtail a bad trend early on. Like I think that's why I've been so so out there about the lockdowns because I'm like, okay, if this if this becomes a trend that society accepts. There's no going back. Like we, you have to, you have to nip it in its bud in its infancy. And like what you just described with the, the, you know, I don't know, weakening of the churches and things like that is that it's a multi-decade affair. Like that, that becomes, once it's that deep, it's very, very difficult to turn, turn back. Um, so I, I don't know. It's just like, if, if we, I mean, obviously, we've seen a, an increase over the past few decades of socialistic uh, principles and getting away from capitalistic ideals, particularly when it comes to, you know, Ivy League schools and higher education. It's like every every single person coming out of college these days, for the most part, has been force-fed Marxist ideology to the point that capitalism is, in fact, more of a bad word than Marxism, and that that is a trend. You know, I'm. I graduated in 2000 uh, from high school. Uh, that's a trend that I would have never imagined to take hold in America. And in my adult life, it has basically prevailed. I mean, it has. They have basically won the culture war 
when it comes to Marxism versus capitalism. And if we lose, basically what I'm saying is if we lose faith and religion, even, even though I'm not a religious person, if we lose to Marx and we lose to Satan, we're in a lot of trouble here, folks. Like, <laughs> like this is bad it's not news. not good. <laughs> yeah. We are. We are in trouble. And I hate to be like that SNL character, that womp womp, like SNL, <laughs> Debbie Downer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But we are in trouble. We really are because we don't have strong institutions on either side of the aisle that are still upholding the values of individual liberty and free markets. These very basic ideas, these very basic principles of liberty they're disappearing in our society. And, and it's happened quite quickly. I think our religious institutions have gone very nationalist. And I think that that's every bit as dangerous as socialism, every bit as damaging as socialism. Um, and I do think that, you know, the socialists and the communists have laid a very um, intentional, slow, methodical sort of um, entrapment for the American citizen over the past three, four decades and, and really taking our institutions in the educational um, world. And, you know, I encounter so many young people who again, I grew up very differently. I didn't go through all the institutions that people normally go through in this country, but so many people I meet are like, you're the first person I've ever met who said a positive thing about capitalism to me, or who's really like explained the difference in capitalism or socialism. And it is so ingrained and so indoctrinated. Um, it's problematic. And, and I think what's even worse is that as it feels like an ideology is becoming dominant, it becomes harder and harder to speak out against it. And I remember, um, you know, especially I just an ideology like Marxism. Yeah, or because nationalism. You know, I well, think I'm just saying. I'm just saying that they everybody around you. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. There sorry, you the, go. <laughs> the connection. The connection's kind of bad. So I, uh, when it glitches out, I can't really tell uh, that you were talking. So I didn't mean to interrupt. Please continue. No, I was just going to say, um, you know, if everybody around you, if you're in a certain world, you know, as a Christian, if, if everybody in your world's going towards nationalism or as a young person, if everybody, you know, is moving towards socialism, it becomes harder and harder to speak out against those things, not just for fear of losing like, you know, popularity or for criticism from your peers, but there can be real repercussions. Like when I moved out of music into politics in 2016, I did so thinking like we were about to have a real libertarian moment. I thought Rand Paul was going to get the nomination. I was full of hope. I was an idiot, but I really thought like that's where the country was going in response to Obama. And when it moved the opposite direction, I had just started working for a free market think tank in Nashville. And I ended up having a lot of um, enemies. You know, I had state senators that would try to like get me fired or get me in trouble for taking a stance in favor of, of Kaepernick kneeling. Um, mm -hmm. over police brutality. They would be mad that I said something on my personal Facebook about that. Or if I said something, you know, pro-capitalist, I would have left-wing people try to contact and get me in trouble. And so it becomes something where you're not only in danger of like popularity, but it becomes something where like your livelihood can be endangered. You can be pushed out of these circles in which you found your identity. It's not always easy to ask people to stand up and speak out against these things when the inertia in the country is moving in a certain direction. So it's it's becoming harder and harder, I think, not only um, for us to push back against these tidal waves, but also to elevate voices of people who uh, protest or who digress from these viewpoints. Absolutely. And I mean, that, that's the reason that I, I bring up Marxism as opposed to nationalism as the reason that this is getting so bad is simply because historically Marxism, these are the hallmarks of it where uh, any sort of dissident thought can get you put up against the wall. I mean, they can execute you for that type of stuff. And um, obviously there are examples in history where nationalism led towards that same path. But in truth, our government isn't very nationalistic when it comes to uh, you know, cancel culture and all this stuff. It's, it's much more like 
this is more of a cultural uprising, truly. I mean, when it comes to cancel culture in particular is like, and now mm-hmm. it's now it's infiltrating every aspect of our government too, but it's really a bottom up thing. Like it came from the college students and now they're getting to, of age where they can be in political positions of power. And now we have fucking generals in the military talking about, you know, maternity outfits for, you know, people. And I'm like, I'm like, look, I don't care at all about the military really because I'm a non-interventionist and I would like to not be in any of these wars, but, (laughs) but it is psychotic to be concerned with the amount of diversity when it comes to, you know, higher ups in the military. Like this should be a, if there's one organization on the planet that should be above cancel culture and above, above woke politics, it should be the organization that's responsible allegedly for our safety and security. Like I don't, it should be purely merit meritocratic. Like, Whoever's the best. I don't care if you're transgendered or you're black or you're a midget or anything else. As long as you're the best at the fucking job, you get it. And I can't believe that even the military can have this kind of infiltration of ideology into its ranks. I I think for me, that was the most stunning thing of the past year. It's really remarkable. I mean, other than the lockdowns, obviously. I have to say, I really do a good job of not following the military, so I'm not totally up to yeah. speed on exactly what happened. But good for you. <laughs> I, um, but yeah, I just, as a whole, you know, I don't, I, I think there's also this problem, which what you're describing to me reminds me of like taxpayer funded lobbying as a whole, where it's like these people that we pay to do a certain job, then come in on our dimes and start telling us how we should do things, how things should look, what things should be. And they start working, you know, against our interest. And as a whole, I just think if you're a paid government oper, you know, operative or somebody who's on the taxpayer dime, like go to the job we're paying you to do and stay out of the public discourse. Like, I don't think that's your proper role. And if you want to weigh into the proper discourse as a private citizen, fine, but do right. it on your own time and not on our dollar. Yeah. Well, they, they have sitting generals that are talking about Tucker Carlson and critiquing him because he came out in opposition to this stuff. And I, I'm not some like diehard Tucker fan or anything, but I think that his critique was, was valid. Like this should be meritocratic. Like we should be basing these, these positions on merit alone. And it's just, it's just really concerning to me that like, this is the one level I thought, you know, maybe before I died, I'd see it, but not, you know, five years after this whole cancel culture nonsense took over the, the planet. It, it's funny. I actually, I made a comment earlier this week that I thought that this is my honest, this was my honest assessment about five years ago when all of the clickbait ads were like, you know, men are evil and we need to have X amount of people of, <laughs> of certain colors, you know, being in certain positions or else we're, you know, we're going to die or whatever. I, I thought that this was all a product of like media dying and that it was just clickbait ads. And then it just became our reality. Like our clickbait ads became our reality, like our dystopic nightmarish reality. Am, am I, was I wrong? Was it actually being, was it not a joke when they first started this stuff? Like, were they taking it seriously? Cause it really seemed as if they were just trying to upset people into clicking them. And now we have like major policymaking based off of these, in my view, completely illiberal concepts of like basing every single hiring decision based off of what you look like. I mean, that is so counter to what I thought was woke when I was growing up was like, no, we base it off of how good you are at stuff, not what you look like. That's actually racist. I don't know. Right. I'm, I'm going off. No, I think there, I think it was dead serious. And, you know, I'm, I'm somebody who very much believes in like 
equal opportunity for all and in trying to like sure. elevate all ships. Of course, I think most people do, but it goes in the opposite direction where it becomes very ineffective, where it actually starts to discriminate against other people and it's severely problematic. But I, I don't think it was clickbait. I think it's always been very serious. And, okay. um, and I think as a whole, you know, the problem is like they get clicks for it. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> At the end of the day, it's sort of this like free market problem. Like this is the downside of free markets is that when it gets people talking and gets their attention, it just keeps going and snowballing because they're right. getting clicks and it gets attention and people are interested in it. And I actually really do think like there are some components of the culture war that are serious that need to be had. There are others that are severe distractions from what the government's actually doing. And I think that so much of our population gets very tied up in these culture wars that ultimately don't really matter. Like there are these sort of hyperbolic fear mongering situations that, you know, we could sit here and have theoretical debates about all day, but does it matter or does it matter that they just spent $40,000 plus per taxpayer on these stupid stimulus corporate welfare transfers? Like, let's focus on the real things. And it, and yeah. I get so pissed off at the culture war stuff because I think it's something where people like aren't qualified, don't really want to spend the time to become able to the things that actually matter. They don't really want to give the attention to it to become astute enough to actually enter that phase of the debate. And so they focus on these like stupid little, you know, panamets or senses, bread and circuses, sort of like right. day in, day out culture wars. And it's, it's exhausting. You know, I don't, I see so much of it and I just, I don't care. Like, I don't care if there is a transgender girl who wants to play sports and it's going to, you know, it's not going to happen like 10 teams in the whole country like <laughs> I, why is this the dominant news story instead of the wars that we're in or instead yeah. of the money that we're spending or instead of like the number of regulations that we're using it's just we focus on the wrong things so much and it's exhausting because it's impossible to pull the culture's attention away from it because this is what interests them and regulations and taxes and wars and all these things that actually make their lives worse tend to not they just yeah. don't get it it's not as clickbaity and I, and I don't think that's an accident. I think that it's it's really well orchestrated, honestly, because ultimately, like, little Nas X's shoes don't matter. They really <laughs> genuinely don't. Um, and perhaps if the conservatives could have, I said yesterday, if the conservatives could have the same energy for his stupid, edgy marketing campaign <laughs> as they do for protecting our fucking freedoms, we might actually right. not be headed towards God. a dystopic nightmare. Um but it's what a wonderful it, world it could be. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And <laughs> and I, I completely agree with you. Like our focus ought to be on the wars. But the reason I've recently concerned myself slightly more with the culture stuff is because it's no longer just clickbaity weird ads. They are putting it into law. I live in California. They're talking about having, you know, uh, mandated law as to, you know, what the board of companies looks like. And I'm like, okay, this is, this is next level. I mean, this is not, this is no longer like, oh, we should have. Like should is fine. Right. Must I have a problem with. When you start yeah. to go from should to must, I'm like, okay, well now your stupid ideas are starting to infringe in the market. And if, we, if you expect us to be able to compete with someone like China, who doesn't give a shit about any of this nonsense, they laugh at us about it. Good luck. I mean, they're going to they're going to run us over if you have all of these policies that are predicated on like oh well you have to have one transgender person on this board or else you're transphobic it's like no that there's just not that many transphobic or trans transsexual people on the planet you know like there's just not that many so you can't have one on every board of every fortune 500 company this is nonsense but this is where we're headed and i don't see anyone like actually 
meaningfully turning back the tide and they seem to be winning the war. They really do. I don't know. Maybe I'm yeah, overstating it. I don't think it. you're wrong. No, I don't think you're wrong at all. And I actually posted something like on the other side, but similar today about, um, I saw an article saying DeSantis was thinking about like banning companies from requiring a vaccine. And I'm like, oh God, I want to like this, but I can't because it's the private business's decision, right? Like right. I think vaccine mandates are stupid. I think they're illiberal. I would not cooperate. I would, I would frequent businesses that have them, but I got to take a stand and say it's their right to have them, right? Like, I don't like when boards, you know, don't have women. I think you're, and, and people of color, you know, somebody who works within boards, I think you miss incredible perspectives and, um, and, and worldviews that you can't otherwise get without having diversity at the table. Like I so value having men and women and people of color and, and people of different nationalities at the tables that I come together with. And, and I really, you know, crave that kind of like holistic worldview and perspective, but if a company doesn't, my bet is they're not going to be that successful for very long. Cause they're missing a big you know piece of the pie. So let them naturally go under, let them naturally occur those kind of yeah those let's kind let of the free market impacts. let the and free market punish the bigots it's perfect i mean exactly, we don't have to we exactly. don't have to make this law we don't have to and i do think i mean everything in this country is moving against us right like it's not just free markets it's not just individual liberty it's not just limited government it's across the spans of these ideas everything is moving towards a, in a very regressive pace towards this old way of doing things in which people were poor and worked longer hours and had much harder ways of life and it's just such a indictment of our public school system that people don't know history better in order to understand the um the part of the movement and what they're moving towards well, you are a tremendous product of homeschooling, so you're a great, a great <laughs> testament to to the beauty of it. And I hope that uh, I hope that more people will start to do it. Anyways, uh, you guys can follow uh, Hannah on Twitter at Hannah Cox Seven. And what uh, you've got an incredible byline. You're doing tons of great work. So go ahead and just lay it on the people. Just I just work all the time. Um, <laughs> they can find me at Hannah Cox Seven on Twitter at Hannah Danielle Cox Seven on Facebook. I have my vodcast, which is based with Hannah Cox. That's on YouTube, Facebook, iTunes, and Spotify. So I'd love to connect with people there and they can find all my other platforms from, from one of those. Awesome. Well, it was, it was a blast, Hannah. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Clint. Really enjoyed it. Another banger episode. Thank you so much for coming on, Hannah. Make sure you guys go follow her stuff. Her show on YouTube called Based is really fun. And I think it's very informative. So definitely check that out. We have had 50 more five-star reviews over the past 30 days. I had 100 in the first nine months, and I've had 50 in the last 30 days. Y'all are supportive kings. <laughs> it makes me want to cry. I'm so appreciative. As promised, here is the shout-outs. We only got six write-ups out of those 50, but nonetheless, thank you guys so much for leaving them. They really do help with the stupid iTunes algorithms. So if you enjoy the show, uh, please do keep leaving those five-star reviews. First off, we got... H-A-A-N-D-D-R-I-N-K-I-N. Hand drinking. <laughs> Probably drunk. Uh, says, Clint is a natural. Fantastic interviews conducted by a talented interviewer. I can't get enough. I can't get enough either, bro. I can't. I just, I can't stop. And we got Mr. Duck Pants. Show is dopeness. Great podcast. Appreciate the free gray matter upgrade. Upgrading the gray matter. And we got uh, Dickless One, which I think I think left a review before. But anyways, we got another one. Uh, it says, thank you. Started listening after I heard you on Pete's show. You are now one of my main podcasts. Thanks for what you do. Stop wearing a hat. I need to know what's under there. There ain't much under there, brother. I shaved my noggin. 
you know, sorry. Uh, but I have been on some shows where I didn't wear a hat, so you can see. I'm just as fucking beautiful as always. Uh, not M3G says, very cool. Straight into the point. Five stars. I appreciate it. Then we got Power Saw 550. Sounds like a Power Saw I need to pick up. Great show. Just when I thought my podcast lineup was full, I came across Clint and his show. Great content and the best intro outro I've ever heard. God damn right it is. Thank you, Power Saw 550. And then Ebter Nickname says, Best political podcast. Can't get enough of this voice. Keep up the informative seduction. Seducing all the gents out there with my sweet, sweet pipes. Thank you, Ebter Nickname. I am the best political podcast since you said so. Um, thank you guys so much. This, uh, this show just keeps growing, it, like rapidly, rapidly growing. If you want to continue to help it grow, as you see, I am not doing ads at this point. Uh, I may in the future, but for now, I really like to just grow it organically. And you guys are doing a phenomenal job at that. And that's really what I'm all about is just growing it as rapidly as possible. And my God, it's growing rapidly. Uh, I think we had 25,000 downloads over the past 30 days, which is bonkers. And I, c I couldn't have done it without you. If you want to continue to, to support the show, best way to do so right now is to leave a five-star review on iTunes or go to Teespring, that's T-E-E-Spring.com backslash liberty-lockdown-podcast. Uh, this link will also be in the description for the show. And you can buy one of my fancy shirts that says Liberty Lockdown has Statue of Liberty and handcuffs on the back. It is bad effing ass. And you could just wear it, and then people walk up to you and be like, bro, I hate these lockdowns too. And you could be like, yo, check out this show. He's the shit. Big shout out to everybody that's been with me since Jump Street. Appreciate y'all. World premiere. Welcome to Liberty Lockdown, please scan your barcode Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold Where did it come from and where did it go? It requires a fight, not tweeting from your phone Don't need a king, get him off the fucking throne If you're riding with the thought, you've always got a home The virus you're scared of will come and it'll go The government knows this, don't get treated like a hoe Like Nico and Shane, you're probably wondering what's happening Scared Hollywood left these lyrical fappening A typo with Luke might bring the nooses We all bite the bullet, I'm the king of the gooses Freckles and Brit, didn't know I could spit Knew I was a patriot, but now I'm the shit Peter Quinones, invite me on Which podcast sends custom songs Part of the problem, now I stand with the people Dave showed the way, but I am unequal Lions of Liberty, now hear me roar Beat running up, but I got a bit more Robbie the Fire, always running his mouth But I made him a sandwich, now I'm man of the house No malice for Nick, but you're welcome to quit I went over BLM with the fire I spit Friends against government, just call us fags Copy the Cairo, put mummies in the bag Liable opinions get thrown on the ground Silky Smooth Tom was the only sound Getting so hot must be air July Screaming in the mic to rip a 59 Miles to Ray showed that black guns matter Now all these lefties got crazy small bladders None of us wanted war but we're ready You know I be bopping and rock steady Liberty lockdown, please scan your barcode Your liberty ain't gone but yeah it's on hold Where did it come from and where did it go It requires a fight, not tweeting from your phone Don't need a king, get them off the fucking throne If you're right with the thought, you've always got a home The virus you're scared of will come and it'll go The government knows this, don't get treated like a hoe Let's get into the show.